I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 17. The book of Exodus, chapter 17. We're starting with verse 8 in just a sec. As we continue through this third part of the Exodus story, the Israelites' journey through the desert, their basic training, their orientation and discipleship continues. Now, as we prepare to read the text this morning, I want to ask you, have you ever taken a road trip? Hearing a lot of affirmation there. Have you ever taken a road trip and made a stop along the way that didn't turn out the way you expected? You just wanted to get off the beaten path for a spell. You just wanted a little break. And at first, where you pull off is nowhere special. Nothing out of the ordinary. And then something happens that makes that little, seemingly inconsequential pit stop one of the more memorable parts of the trip. So it was for Moses and the Israelites at a place called Rephidim. The name Rephidim means resting place, but unfortunately, the venue didn't live up to its name for the Israelites. Here, they found no water. Here, there would be no rest. Up to this point, Israel's trials have been focused, as we talked last week, on the bare necessities, the basic necessities of survival, food and water. But as we come to the text this morning, now their safety and security will be on the line as the Israelites are about to be battle-tested. From the book of Exodus chapter 17, starting with verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of the Amalek of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. He said for the hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As God's people continued on their way through the wilderness, Rephidim was just about supposed to be a rest stop. A short break along the way, a place to recharge, to find water and catch your breath. Instead, as we heard, it became the place where Moses and the people became victims of a surprise attack. Here, for the first time, Israel goes to war as the Israelites have their first encounter with the armies of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were descendants of Amalek, one of Esau's grandsons. Esau being the son of the promise Abraham perceived with his wife's servant Hagar. One of those descendants, one of those grandsons was Amalek. And as a people, the Amalekites were a nomadic tribe that roamed throughout the area, and no doubt they perceived the Israelites as a potential threat to their share of a limited water supply 
and limited land for pasturing their animals. And so in response, they raided the Israelites while they were making camp at Rephidim. Now later on, when this battle is remembered and recorded by Moses in the pages of Deuteronomy, we learn that the strategy of the Amalekites was to attack the Israelites from the rear. And again, you've got to remember, this is these large numbers of people that Moses is carrying through the wilderness. Uh, estimates are in over 2 million men, women, and children combined. And so you can imagine how spread out they are. And so the Amalekites, their strategy was to attack from the rear. They went after the stragglers at the rear of the Israelite convoy, picking off those who were falling behind, and yet not close enough to the majority of the group. Now in response, as we heard, Moses commands one of his lieutenants, if you will, a man named Joshua, who we hear about for the first time, but we'll hear a lot more about later. Joshua was told to gather a force of men to lead the defense of the Israelites. And as Joshua leads his men into battle, Moses goes up onto the top of a hill where he can observe the conflict. His brother Aaron and a man named Hur travel up to this lookout point with Moses. The Bible tells us that while the battle was taking place below, as Moses lifted up his hands, most likely with the staff that God had given him back in Egypt, this gesture is meant to be understood as a posture of prayer. Moses lifts up his hands as a way of invoking God's presence, of seeking God's intervention. He raises up to the heavens the same staff that he used during the plagues of Egypt, the same staff from the parting of the waters of the Red Sea, the same staff by which water was brought forth from a rock for millions of people. Interestingly, and not coincidentally, the battle down below, we're told, corresponded with Moses' prayer posture. Whenever he kept his, stand, his hands up, his staff elevated high, Joshua and the Israelites would overtake the Amalekites. But whenever Moses' arms grew tired and his staff lowered, the Amalekites would regain the upper hand in the battle. As Moses grew more and more exhausted, Aaron and Hur got involved. Together they became a support to Moses. They found a stone for him to sit on. Each of them grabbed an arm and helped Moses to keep his, arm, his hands held high in the air. And we get the sense from this that this conflict lasted quite a while. But eventually, Joshua and his troops were victorious. A brief footnote to this story tells us that while Israelites, the Israel's war with the Amalekites was far from over, it would last for many generations, well into the reign of King Hezekiah, we're told this, but for today, the battle at Rephidim had been won. And I think for all of us, the lesson to be learned here is fairly obvious. Still, it's better experienced than simply told. So if you'll play along with me, I'd like each of you to just hold out both of your arms for the next couple of minutes while I continue. You don't have to raise them high into the air, just like this. Just hold out both arms in front of you while I keep going. And you keep going as long as you can. Do you ever wonder about this story? I mean, what was the Lord thinking? Isn't it, this a rather odd and frankly inefficient way for God to work? I see some of you drooping. Keep your arms up. <laughs> Does anyone here doubt that the Lord could have managed to ensure the Israelites' victory over the Amalekites in a much quicker and, frankly, more impressive display of his might? 
What's the point of letting all the blood leave Moses' arms? Of allowing them to ache and grow numb? Like perhaps your arms are just starting to feel right now. But what if I invited you to work together in groups? Groups of three in holding up just a pair of arms. You can put your arms down. What if you did that? What if instead of holding up your arms as you did, I put you in groups of three and you just held up one person's arms. Two supported the other. In an instant, the task would become simpler. Manageable, sustainable. Our perspective shifts when we think about it this way and we see things differently. We're told, interestingly in this story, um, that Joshua defeated the Amalekites with the sword. But after this, if we, and if we read between the lines, we know better. Israel prevailed not because of one man, but due to the unity of several men. Aaron, Hur, Joshua, and Moses together, studying this conflict from a distance, apart from the lens of God's word, we'd probably focus on Joshua's military strategy and tactics. It'd be something on the History Channel, his courage and resolve in the face of the enemy, taking apart all of what took place. But a closer look, however, reveals that it was not an individual that made the difference, but three men on a mountain. It was a community that won the battle. Beloved, this episode in Israel's journey reminds us that God calls us not merely as individuals, but as a community. We are brought into relationship not only with this God, but with each other. As God's people, our relationship with this God cannot be separated from our connection and our commitment to each other. We may try, but that's not how God envisions it, creates it, or maintains it. Our relationship with this God cannot be separated from our connection and commitment to each other. Alone, Moses' strength wavers. His arms become weak. Supported by Aaron and her, both the fight and the outcome for the Israelites and Moses are dramatically different. A surprise attack by the Amalekites teaches the Israelites, and hopefully us, that to believe in this God, to follow this God, is to exist in fellowship, in community, on this journey of faith, in the battles that we face along the way. God intends for us, beloved, to carry each other, This is, in fact, how God lifts and holds us up. God's presence in our lives comes through community from us being carried by each other and carrying each other. It's a lesson that's so important that it's further underscored by what personally happens next to Moses. If we were to continue to keep reading this morning, we would hear about another challenge that Moses and the Israelites face. Whereas the first test was external, this next challenge will be internal. You see, Jethro... Moses' father-in-law comes to pay a visit. He reunites Moses with his wife Zipporah and his two sons. They had not accompanied Moses on his trip back to Egypt. So this is a long-anticipated family reunion. And we hear that Jethro learns all about how the Lord delivered Moses' people from the Egyptians. He hears about the petitions, the plagues, the Red Sea, all of it. And in response to what he hears, Jethro, a Midianite, Not an Israelite, a Midianite, praises Moses' God. Jethro, a foreigner, confesses 
faith in Yahweh above all other gods. He makes an offering to God, this Yahweh, and he now claims him as his God too. My brothers and sisters in Christ, in this, these just a few verses, once again we have a beautiful and touching picture of an outsider who comes to believe in the Lord, who by grace becomes an insider. The next morning, Jethro accompanies his son-in-law to go to the office. How many of you would like to have your father-in-law accompany you to work? And he watches as Moses gets down to business. Moses sits in a designated place, probably just outside his tent, assuming a position of judgment and authority. And early in the morning, people have already begun to line up to bring him their questions and concerns. English translations of this passage suggest that Moses was only arbitrating disputes between the Israelites. The word used here, disputes, for that word disputes, actually can also be translated as matters. So the people were probably not just looking for Moses to referee their arguments. It's more likely that Moses was not just handing out verdicts, but was giving counsel, instruction, guidance. We're told that Moses spent the whole day listening to people's complaints, questions, concerns, and trying to resolve them. And apparently, this happened regularly. With a nation composed of probably over two million people, one can imagine that that line was pretty long. It's also not hard to believe that at the end of the day, the long line of waiting Israelites was still there. If you've ever been to the DMV without an appointment, you can relate to how tired and frustrated the people probably were from standing around all day. Why did Moses do this all by himself? In a word, tradition. Acting as a judge, a counselor, was a common role that kings performed in many cultures during this time period. Much later on, both King David and King Solomon will perform this role and serve the people in the same way. And while it may not have been a very good system, I hope that we could step back here and give Moses and the Israelites some credit. They wanted, they pursued the Lord's leading and guidance in their lives, and who better to get that from than Moses, their leader? But from Jethro's vantage point, Moses is once again shouldering the load all by himself. Jethro quickly identifies the problem to which it seems Moses is oblivious. Concerned, he tells Moses point blank, you're going to wear yourself out. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. In essence, what Jethro is saying is being accessible, offering support and giving direction are important and valuable parts of leadership, but it is no way to live as a community. Trying to manage over two million people by oneself is consuming draining and inefficient. And so Jethro encourages Moses to share the load of responsibility. Jethro advises Moses to appoint people who were appropriately gifted and called to be placed over the people as leaders of various sized groups. Together, these individuals would take from Moses the burden of solving day-to-day -day problems, and that would enable Moses to focus on the bigger issues and thus be able to lead rather than just manage the people. Beloved, it's, it's 
fascinating to me that Jethro's counsel here puts into words the lesson to be learned previously from that image of Moses, Aaron, and Hur during the battle with the Amalekites. The Lord was using Moses' father-in-law to teach him about community. Moses was Israel's leader. God had called him to serve in this role back in Egypt. There was no question that Moses was the servant that God chose to lead his people through the wilderness. But that didn't mean that Moses was supposed to do it all by himself. Moses was still just one man. From the beginning, Moses wasn't supposed to be going in alone. Do we remember? Aaron was his companion back at the start, and Aaron is still his companion now. Just like on the ridge overlooking the battle below with the Amalekites, Moses needed other people to support him and hold up his arms. Once again, if Moses doesn't sit down and let some other people bear the burden with him, he's going to lose the battle. There were too many people and too many issues to resolve. Eventually, things were going to fall apart. In order to lead the people out of the wilderness and into the promised land, Moses needed to invite to let others support him in what he had been called to do. My brothers and sisters, similarly, none of us walk this journey of faith alone. This God calls us into community. This God calls us as a community. We are not meant to merely sit next to each other in the pew or stand in front or behind each other in line for communion. To be who we are purposed to be, to get where we are intended to go, we need each other. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. We know this. Life is hard. Holding fast, holding on, having confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see can be next to impossible if you are by yourself, if you isolate yourself from others. Trials and tribulations come. All of us can give testimony to the trials and tribulations that come. Bad days can seem like they pile up on top of each other. And sometimes the weight of the world can wear you down. Sooner or later, no matter how tough you are, how strong, how wise, how experienced, sooner or later, our arms, our spirits grow tired and we feel like giving up. We believe there are no other options. We have expended ourselves, given all that we have. And like Moses, in those moments when we can't muster any more physical or spiritual muscle, we need others who will offer us some of their own. Jesus also said, serve each other. Love each other. He said this to reinforce that there are no Lone Ranger Christians. And more and more, that seems to become a mantra within Christian community. And I understand the reasons for it. People who have been burned, disenfranchised, who don't like some of the things that they see. But more and more people believe that you can follow Christ and be a Christian apart from the church. I'm here to tell you, in no uncertain terms, it's a heresy. It's a falsehood. It's a lie. And anyone who tells you otherwise is not preaching from this book. And it's not because... I'm saying it. It's how God created it. We are meant to be together. We are called into community. You cannot worship Christ. You cannot be saved by faith alone, grace alone, on your own. We are meant to be a part of a body. That's how we are brought into salvation. Any other idea is abandoning the faith 
the faith that generations before us have always understood and known. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. <laughs> we are invited. We are commanded to be a part of the body of Christ. Interdependency, accountability, encouragement, strength. God gives us these things through the community to which he calls us. Following God, believing in Jesus is about leaning on each other, carrying each other, working together, holding each up, up each other's arms. Being the body of Christ means being a community, sharing the load together. When Moses relied on Aaron and Hur, when Moses heeded the word from his father-in-law Jethro, he was able to focus on what mattered most, lifting up the people in prayer, guiding the people past their day-to-day -day squabbles and disputes into the bigger picture of a promise, of a life lived in God's way. When the Israelites became a community, not just Moses, but every person was able to do and be that for which they were uniquely suited and divinely called. When the people came together, not just in words, but in action, things got better. Things improved and got healthier for everyone, not just Moses. Battles were won. Resources were multiplied. No one got burned out. No one waited in line. And this plurality of leadership, validated here in Exodus, extends into the formation of the church. In the book of Acts, we read of a collective, not an individual movement, a collective movement. We hear a repeated phrase throughout the book of Acts, unto another. From the outset, people were called to work together, to move together, to be identified together. As the church, the body grew, we read of the establishment of elders and deacons, ministries of counseling, praying, encouraging, teaching, healing, helping, and serving are not merely the job descriptions of the apostles. These vital tasks become the responsibility of the whole community through the gifts and calling of specific individuals, parts of the body working together. The Lord created us and brought us together for a reason, and that purpose cannot and was never intended to be served by one pastor or even several pastors. Beloved, my legacy as your pastor will not be defined by what I do as much as it will be defined by what we do together. Grace is not my church. I can tell you as God is my witness, I do not understand grace to be my church. I inherit. I am a steward of a heritage of those who have gone before me, both the pastors who have come before me and all those who were and are a part of grace. My leadership is not about what I want. Or frankly, even what any of you want. It's about being faithful to, what, to where God is leading us. It's about being faithful to following where the Spirit is taking us. This calling is too big. It's too important. It's too impacting to handle alone. If our group of God's people, if we as the community of grace are to be faithful, are to be victorious, we must rally together. We need to lean on each other as we seek to lean on the Lord. And we've been through some tough times where leaning has been harder to do than it is, has been for others. We've been facing things 
where we've gone off on our own and we're being brought together by this God. And sometimes when we're brought together from where we've been, it's painful. There are many people who are not here anymore. Some who have gone home to the Lord. Some whose health has made it impossible for them to continue to stay in this community. Some who cannot endure some of the changes that have taken place. Some of them are people that are close to you. Some of them are family. And I know, I know it's hard. But we have to recognize that we've each been called. As we look at the things that are taking place, it's not about our preferences. It's not about style. It's not about what sells. It's not about how many people come here. That's not our job or my job. It's about being faithful to what God's called us. Because if we're faithful to what God calls us to do, if we're faithful to Christ, if he's the one that we lift up, then God will take care of the rest. God will take care of the rest. Talk to anyone who's been a part of grace. Talk to anyone and really get to the heart of our story. As great, as great, many great people have gone through these, these, these doors. Many great pastors who have preached from this pulpit. It's not about any one individual. It's about a community that God has called together. A community that God's worked through. Beloved, we have to recognize that we've each been called. That's got to be our conversation. That we've been called, each of us. Each one of us called with specific gifts, experience, and resources. But we must also understand that while we each have been called, we have been called together. We exist for each other. Beloved, it's been the Lord's plan from eternity that we would all be parts of one single body, connected to each other, with each one having a specific function. In Christ, we are not a static organization. The church is not a building. We are a body, a fluid, living, and growing organism. Or as I learned one day during my internship as part of an African-American congregation, when after the prayer I said, let's go do church. And the people I was praying with all stopped. You ever had one of those awkward moments where everyone stops and looks at you? Everyone said, we're going out, ready to lead worship. Choir, pastor, all stop. And I'm like, what did I, what did I, what did I say? And the pastor just, mm. Mm-mm. Son. We don't do church. And he goes, this is great. Choir, we be the church. You're always, Poof. They all walked out and I was in. <laughs> we don't do church. We be the church. It may not be grammatically correct, but it's spiritually right. United by one head, Jesus Christ, but mutually sharing the gifts that God's given us, we are called We are able to extend the reach of Christ. Have you ever thought of it like that? We're able to extend his touch, his grace to the ends of the earth when we recognize and submit to our calling together. We are part of this global and timeless mission here at Grace. We are a part of it. And to that end, I want to recognize this morning. And I want to thank all of you who are here this morning and those who aren't. I want to recognize those of you who go unnoticed as a part of grace. I'm talking about the ones who perform a function in the body of Christ here at Grace that is so vital, but never get the recognition that they deserve. And and while I realize, and you may be saying right now, hey, I don't do it. I don't contribute in order to receive praise. I want to acknowledge this morning your willingness to be leaned on. In doing your part, in answering God's call, You enable others, including myself, to do what the Lord has called us to do. 
And so I say thank you. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you for your dedication. I invite you this morning in that gratitude to come before the Lord and renew your commitment to serve him in any way that he may see fit to use you. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've been content to be a spectator or a limited participant. Maybe you were a part of the struggle of the story here at Grace and you got burned out. You took a breather and you haven't been back since. To those of you to whom this applies, I invite you, I beg you, to come back, to get back into the game. We need you. The Lord is calling you. If you're here, I have no doubts, the Lord is calling you. We need you. We are in this together. I can't do it alone. I don't want to do it alone. I need you. I need you, all of you, to support our calling as the people of grace. I need you to lift my arms. I need you to lift each other's arms when they grow weary. Every church has its struggles, every community. And, and there's so many stories, so many different ways where we are all struggling individually and we need to struggle together. Beloved, we've, we've been struggling through a difficult economy, individually and collectively as a church. Giving is down at Grace, and giving has gone down for a variety of reasons. Some have lost jobs. Some have seen cuts in pay. Some have, frankly, voted on how they think things are going here through their giving. And we are struggling because of that. We are struggling in the midst of trying to finish out one year and plan a budget for a next. We're at a place where we've continued to tighten. I can't tell you the number of prayers and conversations we've had, and we're at a place now where we're, we're beginning to cut growth. And I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking, boasting for myself, but I said it at one point in the midst of your counsel. I said it at one point because we're at a place because giving just continues to go down where what we're projecting for the budget for next year is simply what we think we're going to get for this year. And some of you may go, amen, that's good business practice. And I'm from the business world. I know good business practice, but we're not a business. We're a church. And if we say this is the that we need, then we're, this is the amount that we're going to get. But if it's not really what we need, if it's not really where God's calling us to grow, then we need to put that amount out there in faith because faith is a part of being the church. But I'm here to tell you that while I can say that, that means that some of you need to engage financially here. And I'm not talking to you who are already doing the best that you can. I'm talking to those of you who are not because it takes all of us, all of us together to weather this economy, to grow as the community that God's called us. For others of you, it's your calendar. You're overcommitted. And there's so many needs that we have going on here. A choir, ushers, just on Sunday morning, an audiovisual booth, hospitality. And so many of us have no ability to serve, and yet our inability to serve puts the burden on a smaller group of people, and we're burning people out. I need you. We need you to be willing to help out in Sunday school, to help out as an usher, one time out of six weeks. We will train you. We will come alongside you. You're not too old. You're not too young. You're not too new. There's a place where you can serve. And if you serve, others will be able to engage in the fullness of life in this church. You know the adage in the business world, those of you who are from it, the 80-20 rule, 80% of what happens takes place by 20% of the people. 
And I've had people quote that to me in the church as though somehow that worldly logic is supposed to apply to God's house, to God's body. Where in the Bible is the 80-20 rule? Why is that our standard? What I see in the book of Acts is unto each other, together. Can I inspire you this morning to be together? Will you hold up someone's arms? You want a picture? Get involved. Will you hold up someone's arms? Because your involvement is holding up the arms of someone else. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've never joined the battle. Maybe you've said to yourself, you know what? I'll get involved later. I'm not ready. Maybe you wonder if the Lord could even use you. Maybe you doubt that you have anything to offer. Maybe you've been told you don't have anything to offer. Maybe you've tried and you've been sent away. Beloved, I want to tell you, despite your experience or whatever tape that you have going on in your head, the witness of our story is that God will use anyone who will make themselves available. Anyone. Remember our stories this morning. Don't forget people like her and Jethro. They were both seemingly ordinary people through whom God did extraordinary things. Her and Jethro appeared to be out of the action. Given where they were positioned in each story, they seemed to be irrelevant to the outcome, and yet their presence in each story made all the difference. Their combined task of keeping a pair of arms lifted up in prayer and offering a word of counsel may seem basic, may even seem obvious, but their efforts, their contributions of shouldering two weary hands lifted up to the Lord, of broadening the reach of those hands within the community turned defeat into victory. My brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a place for you. There is a burden that only you can carry because God has gifted you and called you to carry that burden. And until you pick it up, it will sit there. Until you pick it up, here we will be. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's not walk alone anymore. I invite you within the community of grace and out in the community to which we're called to stop trying to bear the burden of discipleship, of walking in the way of the Lord all by yourself. May we this morning come to remember that our God intended for us to carry each other through this life and into the next. For living by faith, my friends, is about the journey rather than the destination. Salvation is about the relationship more than it is about the payoff. From the very beginning, it was not good for man to be alone. After the glory of the cross and the triumph of the, of the resurrection, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord created not the individual Christian, but the body of Christ. Whether we are a highly visible part of the body or an obscure, unnoticed part, we are all, all essential to the proper functioning of that body. While we can't do everything, we can do what we can do. And when we do the little things that God gives us, we are telling all those around us that God's work is important in every detail. When we serve the Lord as we should, we are making an investment in the lives of others. We are holding up arms. And together, we are making a grand statement about the greatness of our God, the head of our body, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we continue this morning, let us raise up our hands in worship. If your arms grow tired, let the person next to you hold you up. A great commission is before us. A great commandment is our marching orders. 
May we answer that call and together as grace be a part of God's resurrection movement. For life needs to be shared with the dying. Those who are sick, those who are imprisoned, those who have been forgotten are waiting for a word of hope and the healing presence of Jesus. It is time, beloved, for us to raise the dead. Now is the moment for taking the battle to the places where hell seeks to reign in lieu of heaven on earth. Now, hearing all of this, such tasks, such challenges may seem daunting to us, even impossible. And individually, it is. However, if we carry each other, if we lean on each other and together lean on Christ as his body, God's word promises that nothing is beyond our reach. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.